Listener Production. I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto, and this is The Science Briefing. It's the start of a new month, and the shortest day of the year has been and gone, which means three science stories from last month you might have missed or that we didn't cover, but we definitely want to give a mention to. Jacinta Bowler, Cosmos journalist, you're here today to walk us through these. Yeah, I'm really excited. I think you should stick to the end because it's my favorite one. Oh, okay. So this month we're going to be covering artistic ants and if frogs have accents. (laughs) Yes, we are. (laughs) But first, maybe the biggest update of the month, Kathleen Folbig was pardoned by the New South Wales governor. So we've been following the science behind the story since last year, but Jacinta, can you give us a recap on what led to Kathleen being pardoned? Of course. So as you mentioned, Kathleen Folbig was pardoned by the governor on the 5th of June after a really long campaign by some leading Australian scientists. Mm. So Folbig had served 20 years of a 30-year sentence after being convicted of the murder of three of her children, Patrick, Sarah and Laura, and manslaughter of her son Caleb in 2003. I won't go into too much detail here, but if you want to dig deeper, you can listen to our previous two science briefing episodes on this case. But Back in 2003, the first human genome had just been sequenced and it had taken 13 years. Since then, there has been huge advances in scientific technology. Genome sequencing has discovered more about carmodulin mutations, with studies finding that these mutations can cause sudden cardiac arrests in infants. It was also found that some of Folbig's children carried this mutation. This got people wondering about reasonable doubt. So in 2015, the New South Wales governor received a petition to review her convictions. In 2018, the first inquiry was held. This one found that there was no reasonable doubt as the scientific studies could not provide results in time. More and more scientists though, started backing Folbig's release, including geneticists, cardiologists, neurologists, forensic pathologists, pediatricians, psychologists, and psychiatrists. After more studies and pressure from the scientific community, a second inquiry was opened, and this one led to Folbig being unconditionally pardoned and released. I mean, Jacinta, this is huge news. It really will be interesting to see if this is going to lead to more scientific reviews in the legal system. Yeah, it's led to a lot of discussions about updating the legal system more generally, but overall, this is a huge win for science. Okay, next up, we have some ants who are skilled in the art of paper crafts. (laughs) Can you break this down for us, Jacinta, please? (laughs) I sure can. (laughs) So there's a species of American leafcutter ant called Atta sextans. These ants are known for perfectly cutting shapes from leaves, flowers, and grasses to feed to fungal gardens, Okay, which by the way, makes them little ant farmers. I think that's pretty cool as well. Oh, little little crafty ant farmers. Yeah. (laughs) So once the cutting is complete, they carry it back to their nests and Mm -hmm. that's what they feed to the fungus. Just one of these ant colonies can harvest up to 300 kilograms of fresh plant matter every year which is comparable to what a medium-sized herbivore will eat. Whoa, Jacinta, that's so much. (laughs) I know, they harvest a lot of plant matter and they don't even eat it. They just give it to the fungus to be able to enjoy. They just give it to the fungus. Yeah, gotta love a fungus. 
A group of German researchers released a study that shows how they managed to cut such beautiful shapes from leaves. Jacinta, how did these researchers manage to figure this out? Well, they rubbed some crushed up leaves and rose oil on some laboratory film to make it more appealing for the ants. Okay. Otherwise, you know, they're not going to eat the laboratory. They don't eat things. No, it's just film. They don't want that. Yeah, they're not going to cut the laboratory film. It's it's not worth it. Then, once the ants start cutting the film, the researchers did a little bait and switch and put a piece of paper between the body of the ant and the film they were chewing. Oh, okay. Okay, but this piece of paper had a little head-shaped cutout to not interrupt the ants cutting, of course. They'd still need to be able to put their little face on mm-hmm. the film. Yep, yep. This really confused the ant because they usually orientate themselves by keeping a hind leg on the edge of the leaf. But once the paper was there, they could no longer do that. They found that the ants were still able to finish the cut of the leaf even without the additional sensory information. I don't know if you know this, Sophie, but they make kind of like a half heart shape as well. So it's kind of like it comes in and then it goes round in an elliptical. Okay. Once they did this, the cutouts were smaller than what they would be in the wild, but they were complete. But then it starts to get weird. And then it starts to get weird. What happened, Jacinta? <laughs> well, they shaved the ants. No. How? Why? But also how? How do you shave an ant? <laughs> how do you shave an ant is a great question. Um, well, they shaved the neck hairs of about 80 ants with a tiny electric razor. They built it with a broken off glass capillary. So that's like a little tiny glass tube. Oh. And then they mounted it on a vibrating piezo crystal. Oh, so, that's clever. <laughs> it is clever. So you can imagine it would be like the glass capillary is the sharp bit. And then the piezo crystal is the like moving bit so that it can just move and shave the little ants. Although, you know, this is very DIY. I think we should just industrialize this process and make little razor pants. I hope that's okay. It's amazing DIY. Next question. (laughs) Why? Why do we need to shave the ants for this science or any science? (laughs) You know, maybe they just decided they didn't want to have a beard. No, I'm kidding. They wanted to see if removing the sensory hairs on the back of the neck would change the way that they cut leaves Uh, because they use their sensory hairs the same way that we would our ear canal. You know, mm -hmm. we've got little hairs in there. You know, we can tell what's happening about the world. But they found that when they shaved them, they still cut with no issues. Mm. But when they added the paper into the mix, so they took away the ability for the ants to stay on the edge, the ants were completely lost. They started cutting completely random shapes, no ellipses. Oh, okay. So without paper and a new hairdo, the ants can cut as per usual. Yeah. And with the paper, they can cut consistent shapes that are smaller. And with the haircut, they can still cut the regular shapes, but with the haircut and the paper, they're lost. (laughs) You've got it. It's exactly right. Simple. (laughs) Just some ants being shaved, you know? Classic stuff. Okay. And now, Jacinta, I'm excited about this one because you made me excited about this one. (laughs) Do frogs have accents? They do. And this is by far my favorite story of the what you might have missed. All frog species have unique calls, right? Mm -hmm. But thanks to this new study, we now know that there are differences of accents on an individual level within species groups. So this study looked at banjo frogs, also known as pobblebonks in particular. (laughs) They're a group of four closely related species that live all over Australia in many different types of habitats. 
Okay, Jacinta, this is incredible, but how did they figure this out? Like they would have to listen to a lot (laughs) of different frogs to work out that they have accents. Maybe, I don't know, how how many frogs do you think they'd have to listen to, Sophie? I mean, I would say at least hundreds, if not thousands, because otherwise, you know, that sample value is too low to make the conclusion that they have accents. Maybe they just, yeah. you've got like a weird outlier frog who didn't learn yeah. to pronounce his vowel sound <laughs> correct or something. Yeah. It, it could just be a random frog that decided it wanted to try something new, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, what they needed was 700 different banjo frog calls. Okay. The cool thing about this is that the audio was all submitted by citizen scientists as part of a project appropriately named Frog ID. Ah, uh, I know of this. Yeah. Yeah, Frog ID is brilliant. Everyone should download it on their phones. It's a really good time. So Frog ID is an app set up by the Australian Museum where citizen scientists can record calls of frogs from around the country. This was extremely useful because, like I said, these frogs are everywhere. So they're from WA, Tassie to far north Queensland. The data they collected spanned over 1.7 million square kilometres. So if the researchers were to collect 700 calls in all of these places, that would have taken an extremely long time and a lot of money. And, you know, also based on what we do to animals, by the time they covered everything, these frogs would be extinct anyway, right? Because oh. it took so long to collect their calls. Oof. Bam! That Sophie, that's... No, no, we can't have that. There's, I mean, I know they're all struggling with citrid fungus right now, but it's okay. We're not going to lose all the pobble bugs. And when yeah. <laughs> I can't believe that you said that. That's No, I can't, I can't believe it either. Jacinta, let's get back to the science. Let's be serious here. I'm just intrigued. What do these frogs even sound like? All right, so I'm so glad you asked, Sophie, because they sound like a bonk noise. I will play you a sound, but before I do that, my interpretation of what a pobble bonk sounds like is bonk, bonk, bonk. Okay, all right, I'm ready for that. I'm I'm ready to hear exactly (laughs) that sound coming from this frog. Okay, you ready? So that's the eastern one. It's like, do you know what it sounds like? It's like you've just drunk something and someone's made you laugh and you're going, like you don't want to <laughs> like spit out the drink. That was the western one. To me, that sounds like a higher pitched. <laughs> I've drunk something and now I don't want to spit out my drink. And just I've a gone, smaller person. And, yeah, like just a higher pitch. It's like a um, stifled gargle bonk. Oh, it's like a little gargle <laughs> call and response. <laughs> it's so big. <laughs> and that was the giant one. And that was the north. Oh, that one sounds a little bit like a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> the chicken of the forest. The chicken of the swamp. <laughs> I'm into the northern one the most. That one's my favorite. <laughs> Imagine just walking through a beautiful forest and you get to hear that. <laughs> Frogs are beautiful. Frogs are amazing. <laughs> But let's get back to some serious science. It's not all about frog noises, although it is right now. What else did they find with this data? 
You're right, Sophie. We've got to get back into the science. So they found that the variation in frog calls was not strongly linked to habitat structure like previously thought. Okay. Because, you know, different habitats can easily affect how things sound through things like distorted sound waves and subtle changes in pitch. Instead, they found that it was probably linked to other factors, like noise from other animals or anthropogenic noise like wind and water. This is important because frogs are just trying to find little female frogs to have a good time with. And if they can't get their call out there as far as they would like to, they might not be able to find a mate. Sure. So these changes in structures are really important. And because there's so much different land in Australia, it would be unlikely that you'd be able to use the same frog noise for every different environment. Sure. Next up, they'll be looking at other frog species to see what they find with other calls, which I am very excited about. I literally can't wait now. I'm so excited. Jacinta, thank you so much for joining us. This was so much fun. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Jacinta Bowler is a science journalist for Cosmos Magazine. You can read more of Jacinta's reporting by heading to cosmosmagazine.com. If you like the show, don't forget to subscribe. And just a quick note from the science briefing team, we're going to be taking a short break, so this will be our last episode for a little while. The science briefing is produced by Listener and the Royal Institution of Australia. This episode was produced by Bonnie Lavelle. Mixing by Dave Stein. And I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto. Catch you next time. Bye.